I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. Today's guest has done two pretty remarkable things. Pete Flint has not only founded Trulia, one of the most successful prop tech companies ever, which he sold to Zillow for $3.5 billion in 2015, but he has also, too, founded NFX, the world's largest dedicated seed fund. On this episode, we'll cover the ups and downs of founding Trulia and also why he left operating to become a venture capitalist. So let's dive in. Pete, uh, welcome to the program. Great to have you here. Thanks, Rex. Very good to be here. Good to see you. So I want to start things all the way back at the beginning for what kicked off your entrepreneurial entrepreneurial journey for what became Trulia, although that was not actually your first startup. But let's let's maybe start there about what led you to come to the U.S. in 2003. Yeah, so I um, is a detect from the accident. I was born in the U.K. Um, and uh, I guess I kind I got a you know while I was an undergrad, I got fascinated by the internet. I did like a bunch of internships at different places, and then on graduation, I ended up trying to get into internet startups. So this was 97 in the U.K. Um, and, uh, you know, as it turned out, I, in 96, I was, I was, okay, I want to do an internet startup. And I'd been reading about it. And and, uh, and I wrote to all the internet startups that were in the UK to say, like, I'm, a, I'm this person, could have a summer internship. I think there were 17 internet startups. What was the most exciting one you remember? Most exciting internet UK startup, late 90s? I mean, they were all sort of like, trying to be AOL-esque. So there was connectivity and media. And I don't, and I think it was the uh, the momentum of the industry, the opportunity to democratize information. I mean, as a, what a 20 year old, I was like, wow, this is a rocket ship. And so I just wanted to be on that rocket ship. And I was probably, I had had some summer jobs at like uh, JP Morgan and IBM. And I just like, was like, I really didn't like that kind of like a big corporate world. And I wanted to like, whip, Iron my shirt, you know, like uh, put a tie. I mean, that was those are the days um, where you did that stuff. Crazy now. So I, I was just like, okay, I'm, I really don't. I know one. It's great because I sort of A/B tested my career in some ways because I tried these things um, with sort of no regret losses. And then I, you know, over. I said, okay, this internet thing is incredibly exciting. I want to do that. So I wrote to all of them um, um, and said, you have any summer? jobs and most of them just didn't have any money so they couldn't pay me anything and I was sort of a poor student so I, so I ended up joining a for the summer this company called Line One um, which was a joint venture between British Telecom and uh, News Corp connectivity and media so really interesting but a really interesting group of people and then I um, I sat next to a guy called Brent Hoberman who later on became the uh, CEO and co-founder of lastminute.com and um Anyway, I, I essentially joined them soon after graduating. com being a verticalized search marketplace for travel and leisure. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, we, so I joined them after graduation, um, really as the sort of first employee founding, one of the founding team members. Um, and it was an epic dot-com journey. It was like we launched in the summer of 1998. Um, I was doing what you'd call today, like growth. I was like head of growth. Um and BD and product and everything else. And then we went public 18 months later, 18 months after launch, we went public. And that was March 2000. And then the sort of the kind of dot com collapsed. And then travel collapsed on top of that in um, September the 11th. But we grew over that period from zero to 
um, 2,000 people. So I left in 2003, public company. And, and just like, you know, I was just in the eye of the storm and kind of front row seat at really the craziness in London and um, uh, travel and dot-com and marketplaces. So that was just an epic experience. I mean, for sure. I mean, like you're in London and, um, and it was great. Um, I, I mean, although the sort of, you know, dot-com was sort of collapsed, it was still, you know, lastminute.com was really an iconic uh, company at the time. Um, but to get from London to Silicon Valley, it's still around today. And it's, um, you know, it's changed ownership a few times, but the brand is, is really, really strong. Um, but the, um, but when you're in London, you're like, um, you want to be in Silicon Valley. I mean, like, um, at least I did in 2003. Um, and so I was like, okay, I need to find a way to get there. And uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's the center of stuff. And, and I, I, you know, you could still see, sure, that sort of, you know, the population was questioning the importance of the internet in 2002. But, you know, you, you looked, we looked at all the metrics outside of the, the stock prices and the momentum, the scale, everything was growing at a breakneck speed. And so and my, you know, my path to Silicon Valley was um, via an MBA, um, which, you know, I did physics undergrad, so it was somewhat technical, but really just didn't have a business education other than the craziness of dot-com world. And, and so, uh, you know, basically spent the first year um, acclimatizing, recharge. I mean, I spent five years at last minute working, I don't know, 80 hours a week um, for much of that. And so this was, this was just, a, you know, a, a great way to recharge. Um, so that was my path there. And then, you know, in the summer of 2004, um, started to think about what's next and what, um, you know, it's such a... And you're doing business school in the Valley at Stanford's GSB, which is where you also met your co-founder as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's like, there's a reason why companies are created there. Um, you know, at Stanford, just because it's, there's the, you know, every day you meet um, founders that are either presenting or you're in your class. Um, there's capital, there's culture around kind of like creativity, destruction, innovation. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's such a fertile soil. And then as a, you know, when you're in an MBA class, it's, uh, you know, the Stanford is, the Stanford MBA is not a, a training ground for McKinsey or Goldman. It's really a training ground for you know, startups. No, it's a, it's a great place. And so how did you use that training ground to actually incubate an idea? And how did you end up deciding to start a verticalized search marketplace for real estate? Well, I, there were a couple of different sort of um, things that combine, I guess, I guess, really two things. One was that, uh, you know, the way that these, you know, classes work is that the first year they put you on on campus housing. And the second year, they said, Okay, you're on your own, you know, you've got to find so, you know, teamed out with a bunch of friends and we said let's let's get a house together and then okay here we are this is silicon valley this is the most advanced place in the world how do we find information about houses to rent or houses to buy i'm trying to think through what what would be the right thing to do um in our collective financial situation so in the most advanced place in the world i was told i'd had to go and speak to either a real estate agent or go on craigslist which which just seemed like uh, you know, again, for what is either if I'm renting, it's the biggest um, outgoing of um, uh, on my kind of monthly 
expenditure, or if I'm buying somewhere, they're probably the single biggest financial decision of my life. And um, and like, so where's the information? Where's where's the consumer tool? And I was just like, oh. it's right next to a listing to buy a used couch or the newspaper where everything's out of date. So I was just like, okay, this is kind of nuts. And um, there's a lot of reasons why that's sort of the case, but it was just you could see that it was like, okay, this is this is the right timing for this sort of activity. And then I, I really benefited from that time in online travel where you have very clear consumer demand. You've got um, fragmented suppliers that don't really know how to navigate the internet. And so how do you construct a consumer experience that gives consumers what they want and then also gives the market participants what they want? And so, you know, that was that was the primary, primary catalyst. I also spent a summer at uh, Battery Ventures um, as a sort of you know, helping them out on the diligence and stuff. And, and that kind of gave me sort of more confidence that this is, this is going to be the idea. Um, and I, and I said, I, at the end of the summer, like, and then I said to them very clearly, I don't know whether you want to give me a job when I graduate next year, but I, regardless, I don't want the job, um, or a job. I want to, I want you to fund this startup um, that I've been kind of ruminating, um, and so, so it's a really kind of a confluence of three things there. One, your experience in building verticalized search at last minute. Two, search is just ascendant at the moment. Google's just done an IPO in 2004, very well received. And three, conducting your own personal search for a place to live and realizing it's pretty broken. Yeah, exa exactly. That sort of the, the Google IPO in 2004 was like, okay, well, this is, you could see that the horizontal search is good for many things, but vertical search is going to be required for a bunch of specific um, high value verticals. So that confluence of there. So I, so, you know, I came back from, um, you know, back to school and the first person I wanted to chat to about this was a friend of mine, a classmate called Sammy Inkinen. And he was quite similar to me as European, did physics, had been in entrepreneurial stuff preschool and was sort of on the spectrum of, of folks with those that thinking about being an entrepreneur. He was committed to being an entrepreneur just like me. And so we just, we were, we bounce a bunch of ideas around privacy and so he was similarly excited about it and so we um we teamed up and worked on class projects and spent you know half of our student time working on what became Trulia and then half of it just getting by with studies and but it was it was one of those things that we had confidence that this needed to happen um and also felt that we had the skills to actually make it happen you know I think you know Sammy's exceptional and then I think the specific skills I developed at Trulia um, around product and growth were really you know put me in a put me in a good position to kind of figure out how do you build the, the breakthrough product experience yeah in the 20 years since the dot-com boom and then burst we've learned a lot about what it takes to build network effects driven businesses to build marketplaces but at the time it's not necessarily as codified as it is right now although it's still still hard Probably one of the big one of the big first issues you face is the cold start problem. How do you actually get this marketplace started for Trulia? So how did you work to break through the cold start problem at Trulia? Yeah, so we had a really, um, uh, you know, I think a very challenging problem because consumers wanted to see everything in the market, and then the uh, on the broker side and the agent side they wanted to distribute to places as long as you had consumers. And there's sort of two ways to do it. One is that you become what Redfin did is an online real estate brokerage and you have to sign up for a bunch of rules and restrictions. You have your own agents. You sort of become a, you know, 
what we think and sort of proven out is a lower margin operationally intensive real estate brokerage or you try to build a kind of like you know an asset like marketplace uh, which was what you know truly had decided to do and um and zillow as it turned out so had the similar kind of vision six months after us and so uh, so so the, the the way that we solved the kind of problem is really twofold one is the the majority of consumers online used online search engines search for real estate information because there was no brand. There was no like go-to brand. And then on the supply side, you know, we'd seen how search. There's this point in time where we talked about Google had just gone public. Consumers are using search, but search hasn't been optimized by a thousand companies for SEO. So you have this greenfield opportunity to own the SEO category for rentals. Yeah. You, you know, I'd seen how... Um, for, uh, for for sale and then and then latterly rentals. Yeah, for but, for rentals and and for. But we we'd seen you know I'd just seen in my kind of previous experiences like you know jumping on these high growth um, platforms. So what is the symbi symbiotic relationship you can have with a platform? You have a fast growing platform and Google needed content. And actually, the way that the brokerage sites were architected was that they actually were restricted by the National Association of Realtors if you're a brokerage to expose your content to Google. Um, and so there was a very specific opening for us to um, uh, to to dominate essentially an SEO, and that was that window was wide open, and we were kind of like um, analytical, product-minded folks that could that could figure that out. And then the, the real the other benefit of that was that the the supply side acquisition, the inventory was you know we we built a bunch of like um, APIs and interfaces but also built a search engine that would enable you know some random broker with a bunch of listings on his website to publish those automatically without any friction we just we kind of did it in, in many cases asked their permission but also said you know hey look we, you're gonna get everything for free back anyway if you don't like it you can stop but it just took time to build up that inventory so over the next couple of years we kind of built up this sort of like slightly um primitive scraping and indexing and feed system with this rapidly growing consumer audience but the net result we spent zero on marketing so over the next kind of couple of years there was like you know we reached um millions of monthly users and iterated on a great product experience the other thing that we did was at the time was like you know real estate prior to then had been sort of a one-dimensional experience nor did integrate maps meaningfully into the experience because it was too expensive and we launched one month after Google Maps um, uh, came out. And so we, you know, our engineer essentially sort of hacked the Google um, Google Maps uh, experience before they opened up the API. And then we opened up the API that we signed up. And we were early on, I think we were one of the top 10 most popular Google Maps websites globally um, because we been really first into this so we were just we jumped on these kind of trends we said okay google maps that's a like that's that's a breakthrough product feature over the whole experience and we integrated that and so we immediately at launch we had a whole bunch of data and a visual experience which was um superior to, like, to anything else out that was out there totally and to this day if you google a property address it's usually Zillow that pops up at the top of that list in terms of places. Uh, and yeah, it's interesting to think about maps, an experience we take for granted on the internet now with something that was new. Uh, and you get these platform shifts, you have the opportunity to build out these new kind of feature sets on top of them. And it's just great, great timing. Um, so you're starting to scale the supply. You know, cold start problem is a problem, but 2007, to quote you, you're 
you're crushing it. Uh, things are going really well. So what does that look like? What do you attribute that to? What are some of the, the metrics you're tracking that are driving that success? Yeah, we, um, by 2007, so I guess we raised a kind of small, what you call seed round um, uh, while we were at school. And then we raised a Series A led by Index, which was like 6.7 million. And then a Series B in 2007 led by Sequoia, which was 10 million. So at that point, we'd raised a bit under 20 million. And, you know, audience was growing 10x year over year. There's light monetization. We're 50 people. Um, uh, I don't remember the audience numbers, but sort of in the kind of probably a million monthly users, that kind of range with zero marketing. So it like, it was, yeah, it was happening. Yeah. And this is an entrepreneur's dream, right? Having kind of 10x year over year growth, strong user metrics, raising series A and B in a short period of time from the top names in the Valley. So things are going, going pretty well. Yeah. And then, then what happens next after that kind of period, period of growth, you know, 2007, certain things start percolating through the real estate ecosystem. What? So in 2008, um, the market, you know, we know what happened in sort of Q3 2008 and Q4 2008. And so the kind of global financial crisis happened. You know, as, as folks know, the global financial crisis was precipitated by the, um, the mortgage industry and um, dodgy mortgages. And so what we'd actually seen kind of on the inside, we'd seen prices and transactions peak somewhere around the end of 2005, 2006. So we, during that period, we'd been actually growing rapidly in a declining market. Um, and, you know, that was okay because we were at very small market share, but we kind of were in this, we were already, even though the market was somewhat frothy at the time, the real estate market was incredibly lean because people had already, there was already a real estate recession at that point. And then what happened, you know, in the summer of 2008 was that the kind of the, um, you know, the, the whole market collapsed. So kind of, you know, not dissimilar to what's happened um, in the last couple of years in or last 18 months in tech is like, you know, you, you see a massive, we saw a massive pullback in demand for our product and we saw a massive evaporation of like capital in that was investing. And I think we felt we were like, we were literally in the eye, felt like the eye of the storm because like, you know, real estate was, you know, real estate prices and transactions were down both by about 30%. Real estate companies were going bankrupt and uh, online real estate just seems like the worst place to be because tech took a beating as well. So, And your primary monetization comes from large enterprises who are paying you at this point. Is that right? So you're also losing your biggest customers. Yeah. So we were like 50 people. And so like, you know, we had probably half a dozen salespeople. And so they were kind of going elephant hunting. Okay, where can we get like a million dollar contracts, 100 grand? So we'd phone up Wells Fargo, promote your mortgages um on our website phone up century 21 and say okay we can elevate your agents and your brands it's like so we we had all these big clients and they and they were you know they had to do their own cost cutting and we were you know kind of like a, you know last in first out um and they were kind of like and 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 they sort of immediately canceled the contracts and so we could see you know our revenue start to decline during this period of time because the, the big guys were just like, okay, we just need to cut 50% of our costs overnight. So that was, um, that was just brutal in terms of just treading water, losing revenue. And, 
you know, the, the, the sort of the, the unexpected upside of that, though, was that um, we, off, we could go to them and say, look, we'll give you a free distribution platform um, for your listings. And if you want to upgrade to some premium stuff, then you can. But, but here's a free platform for you to promote your listings. And so, you know, as I said earlier, we had this sort of like quite janky aggregation of listings. We went back to all the, um, the big brokers and said, look, we know you're hurting. Um, you have way too much inventory that's not being sold. Why don't you give us this real-time data feed of all your properties, all the photos, everything, and we'll promote it on a website for free. And then you can go and tell all your agents you're doing this great thing for you. It's not costing you anything, but we're going to give you access to, you know, millions of consumers at that time for free. And so while it was a horrible time in the industry, we were able to basically flip the supply side to say, you know, they're going to promote, um, um, they were going to, they were going to promote Trulia to all the agents and then promote all the properties on Trulia, which consequently promoted Trulia to millions of consumers. Because we, because if you are a home, if you're an agent selling a home, then you're going to, and you're, and you're poor because you're not spending money on newspaper advertising at that time. You're like, okay, we put you on Trulia. This is awesome. And so we, the, we locked in. the. So you now have this massive distributed promotional network of agents that's unlocked to some extent by making it free and pushing out these tools through some of your previously paid customers. Exactly. I mean, it was, it, it, it. In retrospect, it was great. At the time, it was just like, okay, we're just doing whatever we can. Um, but, the, and the, but the most important thing was actually locking in the data feeds um, because we could get, get this inventory. In. And, you know, the, the data was sort of previously incredibly hard to unlock. It's fragmented across MLSs, lots of different rules and restrictions. And so the, the, because we were a white knight during that period, we could open up all that inventory. Yeah, ha having the right data sources is hugely important. You know, you're in the Great Recession, your customers are going bankrupt, you're, you're burning through cash, you're having to fundamentally shift your business model, you can't go out and raise more money, but you are able to leverage that into convincing people to give access to data. And you're only about, you know, four or five years old. Look at Plaid and what Plaid's done for banking data. They're founded in 2013. 2023, this year, they're just starting to announce partnerships with JP Morgan and Amex to have API-based access to the data, right? So for you, a terrible time, really hard. But to be able to pull forward getting reliable access to that data is a big, big unlock for the business. You know, I think in retrospect, I think in 2000, during the, in 2001, 9-11, online travel, I felt a little bit, um, I mean, we were, we were good at last minute, but we were still a little bit deer in headlights um, because we were like, oh, shoot, like, what the hell do we do here? Um, uh, this is so uncharted territory. And, you know, I think having kind of gone through this sort of like crisis um, navigation at, uh, at last minute gave me like, okay, like either, either the world is going to, the economy is going to collapse, which felt like a real possibility at the time, or we're going to get through this and things are going to be fine. And they're going to be using all these tools more in the future than ever before. And so like, let's just like lean into it and figure out how we can use this crisis as an opportunity and use it to massively gain market share. And if you look back in online travel, it's like Expedia and last minute and booking just dominated kind of post 9-11 and the market share gains were massive and then, and literally, you know, sustained um, 20 years later. And then I think the same thing happened in online real estate, like Trulia and Zillow aggressively were kind of 
both teams had come out of online travel were like, okay, this is this feels terrible, but let's lean into it and like use this while everyone else is is distracted. Let's be aggressive um, and take market share, and that's what that's what both companies did. Yep, yep. I just want to flip and talk a little bit about culture because one of your most important or most important assets as a company are the people that are working for you. So during this time, you've your company about fifty people. You talked before about how you think about building culture differently at Trulia and making sure that people don't leave when things get really hard is critical to survival. So what were the foundational pillars you laid for Trulia's culture? And I particularly love your idea of not just having things you, you talk about, but also creating rituals uh, and actual things you do on an ongoing basis to instill that within all of the individuals at the company. Yeah, we, um, you know, sort of go back to the origins of the company when Sammy and I were at business school, um, you know, we, um, we went through this sort of like, it's now called Startup Garage, but there were like various different modules, like, you know, think about your kind of go-to-market, think about your product. And it sort of feels a bit academic um, at the time, but there's one specific kind of thing to just like, okay, how are you going to think about your talent and culture as an organization? Um, and, um, you know, we, we thought very hard about that in terms of just what kind of culture we wanted to create, because... We knew that we were going to, whatever we we're going to do, we we're going to spend like 80 plus hours and we may be working five to 10 years in this thing. It's like, if we don't like the culture, then we're not going to be motivated and we're certainly not going to be able to hire anyone. So like the culture is like incredibly important and trying to find out what is the culture that you want to work in also with the culture that is aligned with success in this type of business, um, um, aligned with something that stands out and that's remarkable. I'm like, how do you stand out? Because like, there is so much competition for talent. So we thought really hard about it. We sort of codified it as all the companies do and uh, these days and just, okay, these are our sets of values. And then what we did literally since inception was that we, we tracked how our employees felt that we were delivering on these values. Like a product manager would track MPS or a product manager would track kind of like conversion from, you know, shopping cart to checkout. And we... And we tracked those and we shared those. And then we we essentially built rituals um, to program our culture back into the organization. So where we saw, okay, our, you know, customer obsessed was one of our values. You know, and so many companies just like create these values, put them up on the wall, put them in the employee handbook or intranet and, and then forget about them. It's like, you know, okay, if we're, if we're underperforming in one metric, okay, what are we going to do as, a, as an organization to improve that? And so we were... We'd, we'd, we'd really um, tried to be true to these values and kind of improve them over, over time. And it, it sort of, it felt important, but it, it wasn't really until this 2008 period that it was, um, that we really tested it. Everyone's happy when you're, you're growing 10x year over year. There's more opportunity responsibility. Exactly. It's like things were going awesome. Things were going awesome. And then like, okay, the, the sort of proverbial shit hits the fan. Um, and the Lehman moment and like housing is in the toilets, like, okay. And we're running out of cash and there's literally no one is going to fund a business like that. We got it. We needed to figure it out. And so that was that alongside, I think, just from my perspective, I think I'd, I had, um, um, there was a little bit of an, oh shit moment myself. It's like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get us out of this. And, um, rather than trying to be the sort of like this is the plan the sort of you know 
this is what we're going to do. It's like more like this is the problem. This is this is where we need to get to. And breaking down this problem into various different teams, I said, well, if you improve our you know customer acquisition by whatever from fifteen percent a month of month month growth to twenty percent. And if you improve our monetization, if you improve this, the break it down teams, like we're going to get there. So chart out um, what we needed to do. But I had no idea how we would do that on an individual kind of project by project basis. And then being frank with the team, this is what this is how this is what we need to do. You guys go and figure out how we do it. Um, that that was that was like a massive unlock. And so you built this cultural foundation prior to the Great Recession, but then during the Great Recession, you're on top of that cultural foundation, you're having to shift how the org is actually structured. I think you framed it as maybe moving from more of a command and control to a slingshot organization. Is that the right timing though? That might've predated. That uh, around, it was there. around that time. I think there was, um, so I think the, look, I think when you're in a, when you're in an early stage startup, um, you're doing something that has, you know, the, the successful ones have, have never been, the, the idea has never been done before. It's sort of by, definition contrarians like this is sort of seemingly impossible and to move fast you don't really um if you're a small team you don't say you don't sort of design by committee or distributed um decision making you said this is what we're going to do um um this is a massive opportunity there's a the, the founders have a sort of different point of view let's going to go and execute and scale and that worked great um for the first couple of years, you know, growth, product, fundraising, revenue. But I think as we've, as we sort of reached this sort of 50 plus number, um, things kind of, things sort of started to fall down. Um, Cause it was impossible for this sort of command and control structure to, to scale. Like you didn't have information or insight and you're probably just not that great at doing all these things. Um, Talent was, you know, frustrated. Um, and so we started, we, we really shifted from this, um, you know, more micromanagey approach, I would say, to like, okay, we're going we're gonna to set you the, what you need to do, but you need to figure out how you go and do it. If you hire exceptional people and give them, you know, resources and a great culture, um, then they're going to figure it out within this sort of like, okay, this is the set thing you need to do. And so that enabled us to move really fast and, you know, really get the best out of people. And it was not a, this was not a GM type structure. There was a kind of mini GM that was sort of some person who was like, okay, this is small teams, you know, pizza sized teams, two pizza sized teams that would just go, okay, you're working on this, you're working on this, you're working on this. Let's, you figure it out. Um, and, um, and that, that, you know, enabled us to move really fast and get the best out of people and figure out how we got through this. Yep. And yeah, so through through the recession, changing the go-to-market from being very enterprise-driven to more agent-driven, changing the organizational. Yeah, this was the other thing that we did. So we changed the business model. So we went from these sort of like enterprise customers where we had, you know, half a dozen quite expensive. Uh, Paying half a million dollars or more a year to you. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, they, they, they would be bringing in kind of revenues sort of half a million to a million a year. That wasn't working because they, they didn't see a clear ROI. We shifted to basically a um, SMB SaaS um, um, model where we would get agents spending a couple of hundred bucks a month um, at scale and and totally shifting it from small number of customers paying a large amount to a large number of customers paying a modest amount. 
which you know which was at the time was was incredibly scary um um but in you know as it turned out worked great um because it was like it didn't didn't come down to like whether we'd get the when you know whether we hit the quarter depending on the quality of the baseball tickets we bought a main um the main buyer it would be like down to metrics and down to retention and kind of acquisition and training and all that sort of stuff which was much more controllable and scalable so you were founded in 2004 but you're really built during a recession that's when you defined your your business model you defined your organizational structure you cemented the network effects of the business by securing the data um, access and then you were also forced into being highly capital efficient a good lesson for maybe some of the startups of yesteryear or even the present moment to um, reflect on. Uh, you raised about $33 million total before becoming cash flow positive uh, and then going public. After you've re-architected the business during the recession, what does the path towards the IPO in 2012 look like? Yeah, so we, um, so we got cash flow positive, I forget exactly, but I think kind of like 2009, 2010. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then we were doubling year over year. Um, you know, and we tried to go and raise money, but no one would give us an up round. And, you know, and I think it's going to be a common, you know, common situation right now. It's like no one's giving you up round. And yeah, a lot of startup founders, it's they're they've tested the market. No one's giving them up round. So let's get cash flow positive, get cash flow positive and let's figure it out and then reinvest all that revenue and profits back into growth. And we and we'd sort of been like these, this, these sort of like, uh, African marathon runners that are training at altitude. It's like we've been sort of really efficient in everything we've done. And so we, this was 2000, 2011. It's like, okay, things were going really well. And the IPO market started opening up. Um, and, you know, what had happened was because the, you know, we'll see this kind of pan out in the US over the next couple of years, that the um, there was a huge amount of capital sitting on the sidelines ready to invest in high-quality public stocks. They were burnt by some of the later-stage private investments and were just like, let's just kind of like, let's sort of, let's sit on the sidelines. So we started to see, like, companies going public. Um, one of our main competitors at the time, Zillow, went public about a year before us. Had a great IPO. Facebook went public six months before us. And after a rocky start, you know, still had a great, a great IPO. And so we'd seen these, like, okay, the... The IPO market started to be wide open, tons of cash ready to invest. And so we, you know, we saw and that we might be in a very similar business or place right now. You have a lot of businesses that have raised too much that have driven low quality revenue. Now they're being forced to grow while being leaner, having higher quality business models. And it seems like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. But the reality is, if you figure out how to get through this period, people are going to recognize that. Yeah, it's for sure. They're kind of, you know, I don't know when the IPO market will open up, but I think you know, the open table was probably one of the first that, um, you know, went out in a small IPO. And I'll expect to see the, you know, the IPO companies that will be targeting the IPO to IPO in 24. And then after a string of success, you'll start to kind of like fully open up. And so, you know, we essentially we were able to get, you know, what we felt was probably double the valuation in the public markets and the private markets, just because there was like the late stage capital would just dry, you know, dried up after the recession and so we're like okay this is this is it so we we went public um in um 2012 and modest ipo you know sort of market cap was 500 million um 
but it was, you know, great for us to, uh, you know, seven years in to get kind of visibility, you know, have some currency for scaling um, and get, you know, some liquidity for some of the investors as well. Um, so that was, so that was 2012. And I think by that time, what was, it wasn't so, it really became obvious about the resilience of the network effects that we built. You know, we built the supply, we built this demand, we built this matching. Um, and it was like, this, this is a super resilient business that was really capital efficient. And I, it sort of, it opened my eyes just up to, you know, the power of network effects. Um, that once these things get established, there's, there's no, there's no going back. And so you go public, you've been capital efficient, you know, 33 million raised to get to cash flow positive and have a well-received IPO. You had a 41% pop on the first day. Not that that matters, but just to say the climate for receptivity for IPOs was, was strong at the time, but you're now also starting to reach scale and battle head to head with Zillow. You're both spending, you know, at one point, $150 million a year on trying to market and grow your businesses. What's the general climate and your general kind of headspace as you're going head to head with Zillow trying to battle it out to become the number one in this, this category? Yeah, so this it sort of turned into, um, you know, like, a, you know, two rapidly growing online real estate companies. Um, and you know, which was truly in Zillow. We started at a similar time and they launched, they launched about six months after us. They'd raise at least three times the capital that we'd done, that we'd raised. Um, and they, you know, that capital advantage had sort of given them a, a quarter or two ahead of us. So we were both growing like this. They were just a just little bit bigger than us, mm -hmm. which was like maddening and, and frustrating. So frustrating. Yeah, like, sure. So frustrating. I and mean, we were tracking them, but it was just like so frustrating. Um, and then during the period of time, you know, the the features that um, they had, our customers also wanted, so we added them. And then the features that they didn't have, that we had, they added them. And so the product experiences were, on a feature level, were quite, um, you know, basically become identical. And, you know, we do consumer surveys, like, why do you like Zillow more than Truly? It's like, why? Well, I like blue. Um, that's, you know, that's, I like that kind of color. I like the interface, you know, and then we'd ask truly users, well, you're truly over Zillow. And they're like, well, I like green. It's, and I like the interface is better. So there's really no very limited kind of product differentiation at that point. And so both companies were putting, you know, significant amounts of money into, um, advertising on TV and Google and everything else. And just, you know, is kind of aggressive, um, and um, you know, enormous respect for folks, but it's but it was sort of okay. This is this wasn't clear how we overtook them, um, and we were kind of internally just like, well, what's the path path there? Particularly when you're in a public company situation where you've got pretty clear kind of guidance expectations about um, the future of the company, and and deviating from the plan A is is going to be like uh, you know pretty dramatic in terms of the the impact on the stock. And this kind of culminates in 2015 when you get an email from the CEO of Zillow that derails your 40th birthday plans. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was, um, uh, so, so on the Zillow and Truly, you know, we, we had a couple of like, um, um, serious dates over the years because it sort of, we were the most similar. So we kind of had some sort of conversations about how do we combine businesses 
and they they you know it didn't come to anything you know for a number of different reasons one of one in particular is just that there's very hard to agree on what is the right price or in this case exchange ratio between like the combined entity how much would each shareholders get um both did that private 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 public and then and then it's easier public public because there's just pretty clear data around that but but you know anyway we we sort of had some goes in and then i got an email from rich barton who's a banner and chairman saying you know pete do you uh are you free for dinner next week um and uh and uh, I said, I replied back saying, no, I'm not really busy. Because you know what? I wanted my closest competitor to be thinking that I'm going to be like never eating, never going out for dinner, 18 hours in the office, maniacal, um, you know. And um, uh, so as it, so, you know, uh, you know, and he sort of just started to be very insistent. And then he said, look, Pete, I've got this letter here signed by my board of directors that I'm going to send to your board of directors proposing a merger so i really think we should meet up and then i said oh rich i would love to but it's my 40th birthday next week and my wife's organized a party family and friends in in uh in london and so uh, uh, let me figure something out and and then rich was like he apologized profusely saying oh, i've just ruined this for you um anyway like um ended up and i was on the way to the airport at the time so it was just like it was he, he'd sort of given up on email and called me um so so you know anyway i did i did go to london did have my 40th birthday and did spend most of it on the telephone with lawyers and bankers and then we announced the i came back and then we announced the the merger about six weeks after that that first um that first conversation and what was the framework you used to decide that it was the right time to sell yeah i think so look, i'm curious what framework you use with founders because there are a lot of founders right now who are going to have to go through th something similar as well as founders you've backed that have taken things to scale who've had to make that decision yeah i think i mean we were in a um we were in a we didn't need to sell clearly you know the transaction price was you know three and a half billion or two and a half depending on kind of when you count it and we were profitable growing quickly um so we were in a good position but the framework that you know that i used was really like was it was the following so one is like have the rules of the game changed have the things that have been have helped you to be successful in the past going to be helpful to for you to be successful in the future and the thing that had been helpful for us in the past had been product you know we'd scale audience we scale supply we scale revenue really and you know plg all organic um incredibly efficient machine and we'd reached a scale where it was you know product parity it was it was all kind of essentially all marketing at that point and while we had a fishing machine it's like it was it was not a, no longer a product battle because there's limited differentiation because of the products two is like is someone gonna pay currently for future execution and we're a public company you know three and a half billion I felt like for a company doing, you know, quarter of a million, quarter of a billion dollar run rate revenue felt like a kind of like a fair, a fair price for future execution. Today, uh, companies are trading at 3.6 revenue across fintech as a rough frame of reference. Okay, okay, this speaking, was, you know, 10x plus. Yeah, I mean, th things were growing well, but it's like, yeah, it was like a, a fair price. And three was, um, are you number one in the category? Um, and we were number two um in terms of scale 
and you know while i felt we had a better product and better team and all the rest of it it's just like we just couldn't kind of like grow fast enough to overtake um and when you're not number one in category it just becomes very very hard um especially in a network effects driven business exactly any a, business particularly yeah, in a network effects so, yeah. and then four is like um you know had you was there a sort of fatigue or kind of like exhaustion and i i didn't feel that i was hungry for it but the other three were definitely true um and, it, and you know and it was definitely sort of humbling at best job of my life epic experience um you know achieved everything that i wanted to achieve other than acquiring zillow that would have been the kind of preferred outcome <laughs> <laughs> but um you know and they're they're really good guys and so it felt like uh, you know the combination made made a ton of sense and you know and when you're a public company you don't always make these kind of choices as well um so but if it, it was like regardless of that it felt like the right choice at the time and so we combined forces in 2015. yeah i think the interplay of two and three really matters in a networks effects business because is someone willing to pay current value for future execution well if you're the competing network and your network now becomes part of theirs that has compounding value which means the acquirer should be willing to pay you know fair value for future execution and then that relates to number three are you number one well if you're number two it's hard but you're really a very attractive person for, for whoever is number one. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I, I, it's another conversation, but like, how do you think about um, technology and software mergers? I spent a lot of time speaking to a lot of people about kind of what, what the recipes are for success. And there is a form, there is a proven playbook where you have two quite similar businesses. It seemed like there's a lot of overlap, but when they're marketplaces and network businesses, there's a ton of, you know, compounding benefit. Uh, compounding benefit for that and so and and you know in, in many parts they're much easier to execute on because there's not like one team knows one business the other teams knows another businesses but they come combined to be one team it just doesn't really work yeah no i, I think i would, would be a great another entire conversation because truly is still a separate property and so i'd love your perspective on the extent to which the zillow truly are like what's what's your lessons from just running a merger but i think we'll keep that outside the scope of of this conversation so in 2015 you've now exited out truly up but you're not done you uh, then go on to found nfx which is the largest dedicated seed venture capital firm uh, in the world so fund three 450 million dollars dedicated to pre-seed and seed across industry yes you do fintech and some real estate but you really do a bunch of other things as well would love to hear why you decided to move from being a founder and an operator to a venture capitalist. Yeah, well, so I took a year off after uh, after the the merger, and <laughs> I mean, I you know I wasn't like you know skydiving in Bali. I was changing diapers on my newborn, so it was like. Um, Hopefully, you had an uninterrupted forty first birthday. At yes, least. exactly. Very nice one. Yeah, the, um, and the uh, so I took you off and just you know do what kind of most folks would do is just started to give advice, you know, advising, you know, friends and people that would reach out and angel investing more. I, I didn't really, I didn't do a lot of angel investing while I was running um, Trulia, uh, you know, for reasons, I think it just sent the wrong, wrong example of to employees. It's like we were in a kind of like do or die situation and having an angel investment portfolio just felt like a side hustle. I wouldn't like it if my boss had a side hustle. So anyway, that's, I think, um, I don't think founders should be doing that, you know, not at scale anyway. And the, so I, so I kind of, you know, had a lot of, did a lot more angel investing and just found I really enjoyed it, but I didn't like the lack of team and, and, um, 
uh, kind of leverage, I guess. You know, I prefer to just solve interesting things with, solve interesting problems with teams. And, and then I, you know, I had a few opportunities with the sort of usual Santel folks, but had been a founder, I guess, for too long that I didn't want to kind of slot into someone else's culture and organization and, and, um, uh, kind of felt the opportunity to create something new. So I teamed up with James Courier and Gigi Levi-Weiss, who I'd known for a number of years, which, and they were, they were just starting this, um, an accelerator at the time with Stan Chernosky, who spent many years at, at, uh, Facebook Meta. And then off, you know, we spent a lot of time together and then, um, I decided to join and, you know, to turn it into an institutional seed fund. Um, and so that really just a shared interest in a number of different things. One is like NFX, everyone knows network effects. And so that was the, that's the story of my career. And that's the passion for James and, and Gigi as well. Um, two is just being at the earliest stage. Um, you know, I can, I can do, you know, done IPOs twice, but just that early product formation is just the most fun and kind of felt that, you know, we as a team have a sort of unique superpower there. And it's where I think you can deliver the most value the most quickly, especially when you have an expansive network across to provide big unlocks early on. No, for sure. But, you know, interestingly in, in, you know, at the time, and I still think today is that most venture firms concentrate expertise and, um, and help at the later stages where the money is. Um, you know, they, they will put expertise, help and talent where they put capital. Whereas actually, you know, we wanted to flip it and said, well, why don't we put the very best people, people like Gigi James, myself, that have done, you know, significant entrepreneurial activity at the various early stage. Unlike what everyone was doing at the time, and you put the, you know, the junior folks at seed. Um, and, you know, you put the kind of like uh, experienced folks at the late stage. So we, that was really the kind of the approach in 2017. Um, and then the last piece is really about how do we how do we use how do we run a venture firm like a software company because we're software entrepreneurs at heart and so we have 20 folks in our now it's a ai data and software team um which are building you know combination of internal products but also external products so we've been doing this for six years where we've been okay how do we you know we see what happens in wall street how do we use technology to improve our investment decision making process how do we unlock new ideas how do we give tools to founders that help us to grow up awareness and brand so that that was the those were the shared interests and so we've scaled from our first fund 150 million to, to 450 yep and for founders and operators who are thinking about starting something they probably know by now because they're in fintech that if they're interested in building something in fintech they should definitely reach out to nfx but you guys are a generalist uh, seed fund so i'd love to hear the areas outside of fintech that both you personally but also the firm is pretty excited about yeah so we're um we're generalists so you know we we like to think that we don't have the best ideas the founders will have the best ideas and so we're really looking for remarkable founders who have these unique insights. I guess the the areas where I would say 80% of what we do fit into are in the following categories. So fintech and marketplaces and prop tech, gaming, um, and then also uh, computational biology. So we brought on two general partners the last couple of years, Omri Drury, who runs uh, computational biology, tech bio. So this is the intersection between bio and, bio and tech. And then Morgan Bella, 
who joined out of, she was originally Andreessen, then Medium, then Facebook, and um, she joined us as well. So uh, those are the areas we cover. That covers 80%, but there's always, you know, a whole bunch of interesting other stuff, whether that's space, whether that's, um, uh, whether that is food, um, uh, you know, fits in a kind of like selection of, of, of other stuff but with those are you know those five sections are, are core and then I think perhaps within where we are today is you know we're we see a whole bunch of really interesting AI companies has permeated a lot we do we've invested in something like 20 AI companies um, since inception for many years um, one interesting one that's just done announced the series B led by Bessemer where we did the seed was even up which is a focus on the personal injury attorney space in the US using AI to, uh, to help that. We've done AI investments in, um, uh, which are sort of disrupting kind of renovation space um, in um, uh, customer outreach and uh, inbound calls. The, the, AI, the AI space is like undoubtedly incredibly interesting right now. I think where we've seen the success is where they have these, um, these quite specific vertical um, focused uh, platforms with a often with some marketplace attached to them. Those are those are some super interesting companies that we've had. You know, we, there's some combination of like, and this is not to get too buzzwordy, but it's like it's sort of a, a vertical marketplace with a sticky SaaS component with um, an experience that unlocks you know some new product experience. Um, those are the those are the companies that. We've seen a, a lot of success over the last couple of years. And maybe to bring that to light, give the example of EvenUp as a verticalized AI solution that to some extent has a marketplace attached. I'm actually not sure how much of a marketplace angle there is though on, on EvenUp. Limited today, but it will scale. But it's, you know, I think that the what's really interesting is, you know, we, we saw this category where it's a highly fragmented um, uh, industry and you see these billboards, which is, you know, it's, it's a kind of bizarre industry, but they're doing a real service. And the founders had one particular experience where a family member was injured um, in the workplace. And to be clear, EvenUp helps generate demand lenders for personal injury lawyers. Is that they're essentially a tool to help personal injury attorneys do what they do better. And that's a way to think about it. And so whether you're, if you're a, um, um, if, if you're a personal injury attorney, you want to ultimately try to settle the claim with the other party that could be employing this company for the most appropriate amount um, before it kind of gets dragged out into trial. And that's that's a kind of a big data problem. Um, and the higher the, the amount, the more the attorney gets paid and the more the consumer benefits. And you know that these are sort of like performance-based fees that the they can be really meaningful to these individuals that can often mean that they're unable to work again. And so if you're improving the experience for the end consumer while making the, um, the attorney sort of a good ROI on that spend, really it's it's transformational. So they've been working this problem for years, a really interesting team. And um, we, uh, and that's, you know, it's fueled by data. So how can you use data to kind of improve that experience? And then the nature of the, the industry is that selling to, selling, you know, this kind of product to the CIO of, I don't know, Oric or Perkins Coie or Wilson Sassini is like, that's going to take a really freaking long time um, selling into lawyers, but selling into kind of individual folks that are often individual decision makers 
is much more straightforward. So it's, you know, we'd love these kind of quirky. Not unlike Trulia selling into to real estate agents after pivoting from trying to sell directly into, you know, a large agency like Coldwell Banker. Yeah, I mean, we'd love this. It's it's the it's these kind of wedges that we really look into that are, okay, how do you, you know, and the fragmentation as an asset for these businesses it doesn't always feel like it. And then how do you really build this breakthrough product experience? And it, and it's, I think people, you know, you've seen these ways, these breakthrough product experience, whether it's driven by mobile or whether it's driven by Ajax and Web 2.0, it's like, and, you know, you can, truly build these breakthrough product experiences with um, with AI right now. And a lot of these marketplaces and a lot of fintechs um, are sitting on these gold mines of data. And so, you know, this the AI can really create through these breakthrough product experiences, which is such an exciting time. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting to see how this tooling unlocks whole new sets of vertical solutions for industries that have been fragmented for a while uh, and incumbents haven't been able to really serve. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I'll ask you one last question we ask of all of the guests who come on, which is what advice do you have for founders who are setting off to start something today? Advice. Um, optimize for speed. You know, this is like, I think as you, as we look out, it's like the common characteristic is like speed of execution. And that's easy to say, but it's like, okay, how do you, how do you sort of instrument your systems? How do you set expectations? You know, and, and to be able to execute fast, you need to learn really fast as well. Um, and so how are you kind of creating this really rapidly learning organization? And uh, and so just running, figuring out how you run really, really fast, optimizing for that gives you such a dramatic um, uh, competitive advantage versus, versus other folks and other incumbents who are just running slow. Yep. Startups' biggest advantage over uh, incumbents is speed. And so if you can move fast, uh, especially when you have a massive platform shift, like all the tooling come out around AI, it's a, it's a big opportunity. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been an amazing conversation. I feel like especially relevant since there are so many founders out there right now who are having to learn how to change their businesses dramatically in the current funding environment, become incredibly capital efficient. So it's great to talk to someone who who lived through a period like that in the Great Recession and then you know, had a great outcome on the other end. And thanks, too, for sharing uh, about NFX and what you guys are up to now. Great. My pleasure. Great to see you.